This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on Raynaud's disease. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Raynaud's disease affects approximately 3 to 5% in the general population. It can cause pain at the very least and auto-amputation at the very worst. I'm keeping this introduction short as I want to get my own Raynaud's story in. I have Raynaud's and when I worked in clinical medicine in the west of Ireland, elderly patients would say, cold hands but a warm heart, which I hope is true. But this is a good few years ago now, and I'm interested in finding out if anything has changed in the management of this condition. To tell us, we have on the line Dr. Janet Pope, Division Head of Rheumatology and Professor of Medicine at the University of Western Ontario Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry. And importantly, Janet is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Janet, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking you to tell us about Raynaud's disease. What are the key points? So it's important for Raynaud's, especially for people in primary care, general practice, to be aware of it. As you said, it's pretty common. It's a few percent of the population. And the way that I would define it is really, it's a clinical diagnosis. We don't need a blood test and we don't have to see it, but it always helps if you can see it. And in this day and age, people send pictures a lot. So it helps you. So it is basically spasm of the blood vessels, so the digital arteries or arterioles, especially of the fingers, but can occur in the toes, and even can spasm other end blood vessels. And what happens with that spasm is often we see the absence of blood flow, so pallor or whiteness. It's often well demarcated. And then upon rewarming or as things change, you can see the cyanosis, so blue, or redness as you're reperfusing oxygenated blood. So it usually has to be at least biphasic. And I tend to say white, pallor, and one other color, or triphasic, all three colors. Okay, thank you. And so the diagnosis is made clinically. Is, is, is that correct from the history and, and maybe the examination? Indeed, Karen, it's made clinically, so um, we don't need a Doppler unless if there's severe ischemia looking for other things. We don't need um, imaging, anything like that. So in general, someone will say, my hands are pretty cold, and we all can be quite mottled in the cold or even a bit cyanotic, uh, things like that. But it's really seeing that there is uh, one or many fingers in general that go stark white, And a lot of people in this day and age will snap a picture and show you. Okay, thank you. What would you say are the common pitfalls in making the diagnosis? So firstly, a lot of people probably in your practices aren't diagnosed because uh, for many people, it's just mild and annoying. And uh, it could be the same idea as if someone has very mild migraines, they may never present to their family physician with vasospasm causing a migraine. So same idea. So the pitfalls are often looking at what is the differential diagnosis and does the person have it and do you need to investigate? So what's the diagnosis? Things that can uh, really... Um, mimic or sometimes having 
carpal tunnel, not so much, but that'd be numbness and tingling and carpal tunnel really won't change in the cold per se. Um, having just regular normal response to the cold where um, some people are especially very thin and they're cold all the time or they're hypothyroid and feel cold, but that is different from Raynaud's. So most of the things on the differential diagnosis of Raynaud's aren't really uh, something that I would think are the same as Raynaud's because you only really have to ask what happens in the cold to a finger or your hand or various fingers, a digit. And most people will tell you, oh, well, they go blue and white and red. They do all sorts of colors, but it's the white that usually starts and is quite painful. So other pitfalls are when someone has Raynaud's, do you have to work them up or not? So Raynaud's is common, as you said, a few percent of the population. And we really don't have to work up uh, people that seemingly have it mild, have it onsetting before the age of 40, in some cases 45, so earlier onset, having a family history of other people with mild Raynaud's and um, no other clinical features. And by clinical features for younger people, we'd be thinking, oh, do they have a connective tissue disease such as systemic lupus erythematosus? For the older people, is it an ischemic problem? Is it um, something like giant cell arteritis or vasculitis where they have poor blood flow to an entire, say, limb? Or is it systemic sclerosis, which usually has the worst Raynaud's? There's some people in between though, it's mild or moderate, you're not sure. And in those people, you always do wanna do a good history, physical, and if needed, uh, to do appropriate blood tests. But always be careful what you ask for because if we do an ANA, an anti-nuclear antibody, to rule out connective tissue disease, um, it really doesn't rule it out. We have to realize probably one in three women these days have a positive ANA and our most common connective tissue disease, systemic lupus erythematosus, is about one in a thousand. So you're going to be stuck with a lot of false positives. Okay, thank you. Last question about diagnosis. I, I often get eczema. Is that related to the, the Raynaud's or is it a different thing? So great question. So it's not related. So uh, Raynaud's can run in some uh, families, so family history, but not with eczema. But uh, some people have other vasospastic issues. So sometimes Raynaud's is increased in someone with classic migraines, but even that way, not necessarily. Okay, thank you. Um, let's move on to management. Uh, tell us what's the mainstay of management? So if you or you're diagnosing a patient with Raynaud's, what you really want to do is, first of all, reassure. Most times if they go to Google Images, they might find these end-stage patients who are secondary to causes where they really have obliteration of blood vessels. And in general, if they've seen pictures of big ulcers, ischemia, autoamputation, that's not what's going to happen to them in general. So first of all, I think the mainstay is education and reassurance. If someone smokes, please have them stop. This is one of many reasons to stop smoking. No RCT data because people don't usually sign up to be randomized to stop smoking or not, but smoking can worsen ischemia locally in digital arteries. The next mainstay is staying warm. So um, especially 
the teens who might have new onset Raynaud's um, in many countries where it turns cold or the changes in season where it's breezier, they're the, the, the young adults are often the ones who don't do up their warm coat, don't wear a hat, their feet are wet. So really your head, you lose a lot of heat from your feet and your hands. So we want people to stay warm, dress appropriately for the weather. They can wear um, mittens or warmer than gloves. They can put hot packs inside their uh, socks or their hands. And they're often sold at, uh, you know, many different stores, sporting stores up to and including just little uh, sort of dollar kind of stores or pound stores. So that's something, keeping warm. And then um, really to say, is this a person where we need to work them up or not? Because some people will have read about Raynaud's on the internet and they'll say, hey, do I really have a secondary cause? Do I need to be worked up? So I think the other thing when you're managing a patient is you want to look for certain things. Is there a rash in the sun? Witness um, unprovoked oral ulcers big fatter fingers that used to be uh, normal size. So people are upsizing their rings because of tight fingers. The severity of Raynaud's, has there been change like um, ulcers or pits on the fingertips, which might make you think of more obviously a secondary cause. So you really want in the management to understand where the patient's at, is it mild, moderate, or severe? And for most people with primary Raynaud's, they don't need anything. They don't, other than uh, reassurance and keeping warm, they usually don't need any pharmacologic therapy. What about electric gloves? Are they something you recommend? Is there evidence of their effectiveness? So there's all sorts of things on the market now. Um, all you have to do is look at Amazon or search uh, the internet and you'll find various things. So there is one randomized controlled trial of ceramic impregnated gloves. And I think that just made them probably some kind of warmth or barrier and barrier from moisture too. And it was more effective than placebo. Now it's hard to know if the people knew that the placebo gloves were different. They don't really describe what the placebo felt like. It should be identical though. Um, and But I would, in my mind, uh, generalize that to anything that keeps a person warmer, particularly when they're going to have their Raynaud's provoked, uh, exposure to the cold, the breeze, going into air conditioning when the season is warmer, or in fact, uh, stressful situations. If they can stay warmer, they're less apt to have an attack or it's more easy for the attack to be shorter and less severe. Okay, thank you. Let's move on to drug management. Um, what's the kind of first line in terms of drug management? When we think of drug management for Raynaud's, again, for many people in primary care, they won't need to prescribe anything. But sometimes people have mild to moderate symptoms or their job is perhaps outdoors, such as a teacher who has to go out um, and uh, supervise the children on the playground, things like that. A calcium channel blocker can be used if we're looking at oral, and it would be the class that would be where there's nifedipine, philodipine, amylodipine. Um, that class of uh, calcium channel blockers or that subclass are the classic ones used. And although the data are not large trials for most of that area, the magnitude of the trials would be for uh, a calcium channel blocker such as nifedipine. It can be short acting, but that's really in many places off the market. So the usual would be the long acting 30 milligrams XL or long acting. 
and it would be used regularly if renal is severe, such as in the winter for people or as needed. So if people say, oh, I'm going to be outside tomorrow for a lot doing the end of the gardening, the end of the season, they could take it that day um, right around the task, or they could even take it the night before if they're using the preparation that I mentioned, a long acting one. Okay, thank you. And um, anything else besides calcium channel blockers, I wonder? There, there is indeed. So for mild patients, you can use topical. When we get into the realm of topical, I'm giving you less data even, but topical things such as there are topical PDE5 inhibitors, there's topical nitrates. Um, they're harder to, uh, to obtain because a lot of nitrates now, uh, in days gone by, there was that nitro tube where the patient would, instead of a nitro patch, they'd sort of measure how much they put on for heart ischemic heart disease, angina, things like that. So if you got topical nitro, you could try that. And then I guess if a patient, um, really can't find topical things like that. What they could consider, um, interestingly, it's not the ideal calcium channel blocker, but they could consider um, there's preparations that actually treat hemorrhoids and you have to tell the patient that they're often over the counter or prescription and they have diltiazem in them. And diltiazem wouldn't be my treatment of choice, but it's relatively inexpensive and it does vasodilate. And if they're doing topical, it's kind of messy because if you have Raynaud's all the time, you're probably not going to use it. But during a bad attack to blunt it, if it was in your purse or your pocket, or if somebody is again, preemptively, where you want them to put it is not at the fingertips where they have their nodes, but in the web spaces, your digital arteries are larger um, proximally. So across the web spaces, and then we just say anything left on your finger, just wipe it across the um, sort of their MCP area. So you want it proximal because that's where you'll get your best vasodilatation. If it is more severe, probably many uh, primary care would be thinking then of should I send someone to a specialist and should they be investigated for, you know, secondary causes. So as a, for instance, uh, in my clinic, we're going to use calcium channel blockers fairly regularly on severe Raynaud's patients and push the dose. Higher doses can, in uh, some data, decrease the frequency and sometimes the severity and duration of attacks. And we also look at other things, but more for secondary severe Raynaud's, such as PDE5 inhibitors. And there are positive randomized control trials and meta-analyses for things such as sildenafil or tadalafil. And there's some negative trials too. So just it's, it's a grab bag, but in general, the effect size is moderate and it can be helpful. And then on the worst case scenario, and again, this wouldn't be managed by primary care physicians, but you can think about uh, intravenous uh, prostaglandins. You want to increase blood flow on someone with threatened uh, digital um, uh, death, such as gangrene or severe ulcers. And again, that would never be a patient with primary Raynaud's. Okay, thank you. Um, any common pitfalls? in management, would, would, would you say? I think we have to realize that patients can go hypotensive so that you, they have to trade off 
is it bad enough to need treatment when we're talking about these mild to moderate patients who are in general essentially primary Raynaud's or they don't have any other cause found? Um, the, so a pitfall would be they don't take it at the right time. So at the end of an attack, it's probably not going to absorb quickly enough if you're using an oral agent. So preemptively is better. Another pitfall is looking at the trade-off. So if it really is helpful and someone needs it, they um, are avid outdoor skiers or they walk all the time in the winter uh, because their physician told them to for their health, you might want to say, please take your medication if you need treatment for it, that's oral, take it before you go out for your walk. If you are hypotensive um, when you take it or uh, flushing edema, you have to look at the trade-offs or you could take like the long-acting nifedipine the night before. But the short-acting calcium channel blockers such as very low-dose philodipine, uh, very low-dose amylodipine, they have less data but they can be helpful and higher doses of, nifed of um, any of the CCBs, calcium channel blockers, particularly amylodipine, can cause peripheral edema which is annoying for patients. Okay, thank you. Um, what have we missed? Are there any other common questions you're asked about Raynaud's that we haven't covered up to now? There are. Um, what, what other uh, physicians and healthcare providers will ask me is, if I'm wondering about secondary causes, what sort of things on history and physical should I look for? And then what labs should I do if I suspect? So on history, as I say, a good review of systems of uh, the severity and frequency of the Raynaud's, of the differential diagnosis, of which there's really not much if there's classic pallor going on. And then really on physical exam, you want to rule out things that could be connective tissue disease, secondary reasons or um, other reasons such as uh, severe ischemia and peripheral vascular disease. So you, I really think of head to toes. So you can think of Sjogren's, dry eyes, dry mouth. You can think of lupus. Um, alopecia, rash in the sun, malar rash, but a witness rash of some sort. And for us, it's key to look at the hands uh, and look at the periungal area for superficial dilated capillaries. Most people don't have fancy things to magnify the nail bed, but even your otoscope or ophthalmoscope can work for that. And you want to see um, there is, are the capillaries intact. So I can see dilated capillaries with the naked eye uh, in some patients, and I've trained my eye to look at it the same way we train ourselves to do all sorts of things. And if we see someone with abnormal dilated capillaries at the nail bed. That's somebody that I would investigate for secondary. And then obviously looking for inflammatory arthritis, feeling the, um, uh, the arteries at your radial and ulnar. You can even do an Allen's test if you want, things like that. So checking the pulses of the patient. Um, then going on to investigations, I think, again, it's important that you're sort of doing investigations more screening, a wider net, but in patients in whom you suspect a secondary cause, more severe Raynaud's, or a secondary cause because um, you, you're looking at systemic lupus uh, suspect or even rheumatoid arthritis, things like that. So um, your complete blood count, white cells, are they low? Is there autoimmune hemolytic anemia or anemia chronic disease? But again, in many people, there's anemia because of iron deficiency periods, things like that. Are there low platelets? You're looking for an ANA, particularly a strong amount if you have a, it titered out. So the 
the lower the bottom number, obviously the stronger, or an atypical pattern, ANA speckleds are a dime a dozen, but an ANA centromere pattern is very, very telling to me that that increases the chance of someone with Raynaud's positive ANA centromere or anti-centromere antibody or centromere pattern has a high chance of having a scleroderma down the road. Then you might want to do a urinalysis if you're suspecting uh, systemic lupus erythematosus for protein and blood. So you can see my workup is very directed and not spending a lot of money, uh, not casting a wide net, not doing a double-stranded DNA or complements unless if someone has lupus. So you don't want to start, um, or unless if it's a high suspect for lupus and a strongly positive or moderate positive ANA. So you don't want to just go on a big fishing expedition because you will get false positives and they are the bane of my existence as a specialist, getting referrals or people are convinced that they're ill and sick because they had the positive blood test that they thought diagnosed something. And even when a family physician or primary Mary Care says, you have an ANA, I don't know the meaning, uh, I'm just not sure what to do, so we'll send you off to a specialist. Uh, people do look it up or they've been told they have that lupus test. So in their mind, they have lupus and I'm spending time undiagnosing that. So that's a pitfall. Don't do labs if you don't think it's necessary. And particularly younger people mostly have primary. Um, in in Raynaud's, a uh, few percent of the population, as you said, family history is usually about 10%. So if someone has Raynaud's, it's highly likely they're their mom, their dad, their sibling, their aunt or uncle might have it as well. And that can occur in primary Raynaud's. But of course, if someone has scleroderma, say, which is something rare that you might not ever see in primary care, if they have scleroderma, they often have a family history of Raynaud's as well of about 10% of people. So sometimes someone with scleroderma says, can you see my daughter? I'm really worried. And I often will see them in consultation because their daughter has Raynaud's and obviously if you're the person with scleroderma, you really don't want uh, that diagnosis made for anyone else in your family. So we can see them do a quick targeted history physical look and magnify their nail beds and rule out or rule in. Because again, if someone has any of these connective tissue diseases, their family members are also more common to have an ANA. So when it gets out of your hands, if you're not sure, out of your hands, literally, if it's Raynaud's that's more severe, um, send them along to a specialist, general internist, or a rheumatologist in general, or if they're quite ischemic, even someone else that might look into um, atypical things like Berger's disease, which again is pretty rare. Okay. Thank you very much, Janet. That, that's really helpful. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients with Raynaud's disease. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant illnesses. Thank you once again.